Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have another great interview in store for you today. I chat with two women from an organization that has been doing the groundbreaking work to validate the use of psychedelics for the treatment of various disorders in rigorous clinical trials. I think that this episode will be a really important one for those of you who are tuning in because of your interest in drugs such as MDMA or psychedelics. I think that this conversation offers a perspective from the researchers, the core team that was involved in putting together these trials and validating their use. And I think that's a really important piece of the conversation around uh, these drugs. So I'm excited to share this with you all. I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. Kendall Investor Relations is growing and I will link their careers page. So if you are interested in joining their team, check that out below. I also want to give a shout out to our patrons, AJ and Fani. Thank you for supporting the show. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can click subscribe, leave us a comment, go to our Patreon uh, account and, and subscribe there. And um, we also have some merch available through our website. So thank you so much for listening and supporting this independent podcast. And I hope you learn a lot from this interview. Enjoy. Great. So um, I know, Alia, you asked for a bit of background on us. Um, so I'll start with that. My background, I have a PhD in molecular and cellular biology and um, currently work as a senior scientist with Alex um, at a biotech company here in Seattle. My focus is on epigenome engineering. I've worked in a few different areas now, but mainly translational uh, research. I invited Alex to join today because this, uh, this interview was actually her idea. We were out in the mountains and talking about the podcast and she was like, oh, you should really interview someone from MAPS. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't know a lot about MAPS. She is just a naturally really curious person. And I think that's kind of part of what this show is about. And so I wanted to make sure that she got to ask some of her, um, you know, curious questions that she had about the type of work that you guys do. So Alex, do you want to give a little introduction on yourself? Yeah, so I'm Alexandra Croft, and I work with Jocelyn at Tune. I've been working in oncology and kind of neurobiology for the last 10 years. And yeah, I think this will be a great interview to kind of look at the other side of your work and kind of how um, it relates to what we're doing too. So excited to uh, chat with you guys today. Yeah. Awesome. Great. And Alia, maybe you can start us off with an introduction on yourself. Sure. So I'm Alia Lilienstein. I'm a medical director at MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. Uh, I've been with MAPS for about four and a half years now, so um, a little while. Uh, maybe not as long as some of the other people, but uh, feels like a long time. Um, I'm a board certified family medicine physician. Uh, before I worked at MAPS, I was working full time as a primary care doctor in Berkeley, where I still live and with my husband and my three-year-old daughter. Um, I have a background in public health and MPH in epidemiology and biostatistics, and I hold a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapy and research. 
Um, in this day and age, I also like to mention a little bit about my background because I'm, um, I'm a first generation American. My mom immigrated to the US from the West Bank. She's Palestinian as a refugee in the late 60s. And kind of a stark contrast, my dad's family has been here for many generations. In fact, like I actually have relatives who fought in the American Revolution on his side. Um, so I represent kind of different um, perspectives and backgrounds in, um, in, that, in holding those two sides. Yeah, and like I said, I live in Berkeley with my family. My daughter turns three next week. Um, wow. Um, yeah, that's a big part of uh, being a lady scientist, I feel like, uh, <laughs> uh, or my current journey. Um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And Allison, could you give us a, a little bit of your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Allison Coker. I'm the Regulatory Affairs Manager at Maxwell Benefit Corporation. Um, my background and training was in neuroscience. Uh, I had a pretty multi multidisciplinary education, um, and my research really was in behavioral pharmacology, studying motivation, addiction, and stress in both preclinical models and then all the way up to human clinical research settings. So we did really truly like translational research where we utilized the insights of preclinical studies of addiction to inform what we did in the clinical studies and then took that back into the animal models. And prior to joining MAPS, I worked as a program manager for a Department of Defense funded consortium at UCSF that was looking at translational and clinical research in developing novel treatment strategies for PTSD and alcohol and substance use disorders. I'm still in the Bay Area now, and we still have a lot of collaborations with UCSF. And uh, yeah, I've been at MAPS for about two years now. Uh, it's been great. Awesome. Awesome. Aaliyah, let's start with you. Could you give us uh, kind of a background on MAPS and what the mission of MAPS is? Sure. Um, so I think it's important. There's a distinction between MAPS and MAPS uh, Public Benefit Corporation. So right. Um, yeah. So MAPS is a, a nonprofit, a 501c3. It was founded in 1986 by Rick Doblin. And in general, its mission is to um, help create a safe and legal opportunities for the uses of psychedelics in society. You'll see that on the web page. That, that's the mission. Um, this you know, takes uh, many different forms, and one of which um, is MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, uh, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of MAPS. It's, um, it's a corporation, but it's a public benefit corporation. And uh, the goal, the mission of MAPS Public Benefit Corporation is to um, research and study in kind of a typical regulatory environment, uh, psychedelics uh, for specific indications um, following the path to approval um, in the US and other countries worldwide. Uh, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation also trains uh, therapists in psychedelic assisted therapy, specifically MDMA at this time. Uh, so that's another big part of uh, what MPBC is up to. Interesting. And what was what was the rationale behind moving the the research organization into a for profit corporation? Yeah, so that happened um, before my time, um, but we t it's something we certainly talk a lot about because it used to be one organization. Um, there are a lot of things went into it. Partly, like I said, MAPS has many different things that it does. And um, the, the development of drugs uh, in a typical regulatory model is, is only one of them. 
uh, one of the avenues towards safe and legal uh, access of psychedelic drugs to all who may benefit. Um, so I think there's an important distinction between the two that um, there are a lot of other advocacy and social justice related kind of things that MAPS does um, that have nothing to do with uh, technically with uh, the regulatory process or um, bringing a drug to market. And so there's important to make that kind of distinction. Um, and then I think that uh, longer term, uh, there's a need for this drug development arm to be self-sustainable, um, that while MAPS has existed um, entirely on philanthropy for, um, you know, since 1986, long time, um, it's a hard thing to do, um, hard thing to be raising money constantly um, for a very expensive process of bringing a drug to a commercial market. And so there is some need for um, some profit to be generated to make it a more self-sustaining uh, mission. Um, I see. Yeah, hence the public benefit part. Sure. Uh, that the profit is to sustain the mission towards legal and safe access and, and, and research, um, not necessarily um, for any other specific reason, but that is needed. Um, I just find it to be a really interesting structure. And like, I'm curious if, you know, if you've seen that model replicated anywhere, because I know of a hospital, for instance, that's looking into using something like that, like a starting a biotech, you know, internally so that they're able to um, move things into the clinic, for instance. Yeah, I, I trained at Mount Sinai in, in New York City, which started out as a hospital and a research institution before it started a medical school. Uh, and, uh, and so there are a lot of these models of um, various different divisions of healthcare realizing that they would like to in-house or generate another aspect to help um, sort of feed the circle and, um, and take what they're learning and apply it in another avenue. I am um, not as familiar with uh, uh, this existing in the pharma world. It's very quite rare to find uh, nonprofit or public benefit corporations, I think, within the pharma world. Um, although I don't, I certainly haven't done uh, exhaustive research to look and see how many there are. Uh, but um, my experience is that uh, even though uh, these, this field, uh, the field of drug development is, uh, has a lot of good intentions, um, it is certainly uh, influenced by um, the profit uh, and commercial market. Sure. Allison, I want to jump to you and, and ask, how did you first learn about uh, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation and, and what led you to uh, work there? Yeah, absolutely. So our research group at UCSF, which had a lot of experience with PTSD and alcohol and substance use, um, was one of the clinical trial sites that MAPS was considering as they were expanding from single site studies to the multi-site phase two and phase three studies. Uh, for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And when we agreed to become one of those trial sites, it was around the time that this consortium was ending. And as I learned about this phase two data that MAPS had collected, the results were more promising than anything I had seen in previous research. And to give this a little bit of context, the FDA has you know, designated this treatment as a breakthrough designated therapy. And they reserve this for treatments that are both for serious and life-threatening conditions and that have preliminary evidence that suggests that it could have a substantial improvement over existing therapies. Um, and so based on this data, I was just hugely impressed. And, you know, if these trials were successful, it would have a big impact on the field. And I was really excited, and I still am really excited, about the regulatory challenges of this approval process for MDMA, 
because it's a first-in-class treatment, getting to this stage of drug development involves a lot of collaboration with the regulatory agencies. And I really wanted to be a part of like this, forging this path forward. Wow, that's really exciting. And could you give us a little bit of an update on where that program stands today? Oh, yeah. So we have recently completed our first phase three trial. Wow. Huge. It is <laughs> the first phase three trial of a psychedelic assisted therapy that has been done. Um, we published our paper in Nature Medicine in May. Um, so that was really exciting, a huge achievement for our entire company company, you know, all 35 years of work has like culminated in this. Yeah. So the way that FDA does approval is you need two, uh, two phase three trials, one pivotal trial to demonstrate that efficacy and then a second confirmatory trial. So we're in the process of doing our second confirmatory trial right now and um, completing all the other regulatory pieces that need to be included in our uh, NDA package that we plan to submit in the next couple of years. It's Wow. Pretty exciting. Congrats. That's awesome. That's Congrats. huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so you were already, you were learning about the data and the research. You were already kind of familiar with this field, but like, was there, you know, a point in time or, or was it, you know, a specific job that, um, that you were like, I just, I have to have to join this, uh, organization. Um, I do think that I wound up in the perfect job for me. Um, the regulatory strategy is really cross-functional. Um, we work between a lot of departments uh, because everything ultimately there's, you know, doing the research at the trial sites and, you know, working with the actual patients. But then ultimately everything that we're doing in the trials is to become part of the submission package for the FDA. And so as regulatory affairs manager, I'm really organizing and overseeing like all of the pieces that are going to go into that package. So it's really cross-functional and really interesting. So I, that was definitely a draw to, uh, to coming over. And again, like I said, everything that we're doing, like nobody's done this before. This is really like a very different type of therapy that we're trying to get approved. And so that's a really exciting draw to be a part of. And do you feel like, you know, the current therapies available for, uh, these uh, kind of conditions you're trying to treat, how do they compare to like what you guys are doing specifically um, and what are currently available? So that's a really great question. So in the United States, at least it's different in other countries, but in the United States, the first line treatments for PTSD are SSRIs. Um, so antidepressants that, you know, people take for many conditions. You take these daily. Um, a lot of people suffer from side effects with them and the efficacy, it helps some people, but it, it, it's not where we might want it to be. And it is a forever kind of treatment. And what's really different about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is the way that we have the treatment package set up, you know, it's several months, there's, you know, preparation ther therapy sessions without drugs. And then you'll have an eight hour therapy session where the MDMA is administered and you have supportive psychotherapy during that process and followed up by, you know, a series of non-drug therapy sessions after that. And you repeat this up to three times, but at the end of this few months, people have sustained impacts on their uh, PTSD symptomology. There are, you know, a lot of our, I think it was 67% of our um, 
participants in our phase three trial no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis after two months after their last MDMA session. And this is like they hadn't taken it for months. It's not a daily treatment. So the, it's a fundamental shift in the field of psychiatry. They're just thinking about it as opposed to going from a daily treatment to taking this and not needing to continue. Um, we haven't completed our long-term follow-up yet for our phase three data, but in our phase two studies, the when we followed up with people that had been in the study a year later, uh, two thirds of them still did not have a PTSD diagnosis, which was actually an increase. The, the initial, sorry, I said that a little bit backwards, um, but in our phase two study after two months, the um, about 54% of the people no longer had the PTSD diagnosis. And at a year, a year later, it increased to 67%. So our initial findings in phase three are actually a little bit better than that. And we're hoping that we will also see a similar uh, strength of durability when we do the one-year follow-up. So it's a very different you know, schema than the current treatments uh, that are on the market. And so we think this is a, a big improvement in both the efficacy and the safety of not needing to take constant drugs and having side effects every day. Wow. That's great. That's amazing. I like, I read the numbers before this, but just hearing you say it and like thinking about what a game changer this could be, it's really incredible. <laughs> and that's why we came to work for maps. We talk Elliot, a lot about, we talk oh, a lot ahead. about what percentage of people no longer have PTSD symptoms. Allison mentioned that 67% at two months in our phase three study. But the, uh, I can't, Allison, I'm wondering if you remember the percentage of people who just had a meaningful- 88% uh, of the people had a clinically significant decrease in their PTSD symptoms. Yeah, so wow. it's not like those other people didn't get better at all. A lot of them got a lot better. Uh, yeah. So it's a really mind-blowing and, and uh, the effect size in terms of um, how strong, how strong uh, the strongly we can see in uh, statistics that the drug worked is just really uh, impressive in this data and unparalleled in psychiatry for uh, for drug treatments. Wow, that's that's amazing! Like, well done, you guys. <laughs> um, Okay, I want to I want to take a step back. Um, Aliyah, you you've had a really interesting career journey. You have a background in public health. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of these career transitions that you've been through, and and what led you to pursue a career in public health and then go on to uh, medical school? Sure. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Georgetown, I was an American Studies major, and I was. Um, really interested in society and culture and how it affected um, and generated the infrastructure we see around us. Uh, really uh, appreciating the fact that, um, you know, laws, regulation, healthcare, uh, things that we kind of um, don't necessarily think of as a reflection of societal values really are. Uh, and how can they, um, how can they you know, discriminate against people or um, unintentionally perhaps, uh, but how can they, how do these structures then impact people and, and some of those um, underlying values of society and how can we shift them? And I became really interested in, there was a public hospital in DC that was closing 
uh, because it was just costing the city too much money. That was what the politicians were saying. Um, it was a public hospital that served the black community of DC and it was really um, their, that community's medical home. And the idea um, in, the, in the politics and amongst the legislators was let's close the hospital, it's costing too much money. And instead we'll just give everyone who used to go to that hospital kind of an insurance card and they can go to all one of the other hospitals in the city. Um, and, but those other hospitals weren't um, really culturally competent and it, and it made a, and it was onerous to get your card and show up and people didn't know where to go. And there was a big outcry from the black community that this was emblematic of, um, you know, sort of societal values about their, their worth in DC and, the, um, and their access to healthcare. And it was happening right in front of my eyes being a student there. And I became really interested in sort of this, uh, following this, this intersection of healthcare and, and racism and, um, and societal values. Um, and I wrote my senior thesis in college on it. And um, as I was preparing for the end of college, I, I, I wondered what the heck I was gonna do to make a living. Because um, um, I wasn't planning on being uh, an academic. Uh, and uh, the, I realized that what I was interested in kind of fit into the concept of public health. Um, and um, I wanted to continue studying it and kind of gain some practical skills that would allow me to um, shift um, healthcare and public health um, and let it um, reflect the values that I felt like were important um, in society. And so I gained very practical skills doing an MPH in epidemiology and biostatistics, lots of hours doing statistics by hand. Um, and then I was shocked to realize that there are computer programs that do this. And the whole reason we did it by hand was so that we could really understand uh, uh, math. Uh, and um, uh, it brought out you know, my, uh, the math and science side of me that had been a big part of me growing up, but just didn't get a lot of nurturing in college. Um, and that let me into drug development kind of um, because I was interested in um, um, how we present data and how we make therapies available and, um, and access to medications. And I worked first in vaccines uh, and then um, in, on a pneumonia trial. And uh, while I was working in a very nice cross-disciplinary team, I realized that the track that I was on was not the track I really wanted to be on. I wanted to be the subject matter expert. I wanted to like understand the clinical medicine behind why we were designing the trials and that um, that would give me um, perhaps more leverage to um, help improve access and, and uh, in the development of new therapies. And, and also I really didn't wanna be behind a computer all day long um, back then. <laughs> Alison's laughing because that's what our job is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I felt like, okay, I just wanna, I wanna talk to people and, and, and help them and, uh, and, and, then and then maybe I'll continue the research side of things. So I went back to school, got a, I did a post back cause I hadn't completed my pre-med requirements in undergraduate. Um, and, did, and did that for a year and then applied to med school. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then I loved medical school. It was super fascinating. I feel like I benefited a lot from having 
um, taken the time to explore other career paths. Um, I kind of knew what I wanted to get out of it more and um, had some perspective to offer um, a lot of uh, the, you know, rotations. And when you're young, coming straight out of college, sometimes it's hard to, um, you know, appreciate uh, the different life paths that have gotten patients into the room. And not that I was very old. I was like 27. It wasn't that... Um, I didn't have that much life under underneath my belt <laughs> more but still you were in a different phase a little bit than than the the fresh out of undergrad totally and I felt like it was my job to help um, teach my co-medical students that um, balance in life is really important that while we're working hard um, and passionate about what we do we need to take care of ourselves and nurture the fun and recreation in, in, in our lives and um, remain whole so that we can really uh, be present for the work that we're doing. Did you, I'm just curious because it, it's spoken about a little bit more these days, but did you observe any of the um, kind of core practices that happen in the field of medicine as far as like intense hours and? Um, Definitely. Definitely. I, I used to refuse to get up before 4am because I felt like waking up in the three o'clock hour to then go into the work to the hospital. That wasn't, that was like the middle of the night. That wasn't, um, that didn't feel like a, a, a normal time to wake up. Um, so, but there were often times where I had to be in the hospital at 4.30. Um, as a medical student, you're more protected from like those insane work hours, but as a resident, um, I definitely did them working 100 hour weeks, 30 hours taking care of patients in a hospital setting where, you know, I was awake the whole time taking care of them, including in the ICU. Um, it's wow. Every, I feel like every generation, it gets a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people, uh, you know, 20 years older than me in the US had it much worse, uh, uh, but uh, still very long hours. Yeah. And, uh, I feel lucky because I went to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was really focused on humanism in medicine. Uh, and in fact, they have a program for people who are not um, science or pre-med majors to apply to medical school. I didn't apply through that program, but it, but it meant that there were a lot of people like me who were interested in other things, who'd majored in art and, or you know, dance or I don't know, anthropology, whatever that they were interested in. And um, so there was a little bit more balance, but um, definitely medical school is, um, still attracts many scientific gunners, uh, who are, um, despite being pass bail, um, schools, most of these days, um, still people want to be the best and are willing to forsake most things to do it, including work even more. Yeah. Interesting. And so tell us about your journey to MAPS and, and how you first heard of the organization and what led you to, to join. Sure. So um, I first heard of the organization through my husband, actually. Uh, my husband's also a physician, and he went to UC Berkeley for undergraduate. And um, at UC Berkeley, there's a class called Drugs in the Brain. Mm -hmm. That may not actually be what it's called. It is what it's called. I went to UC Berkeley, but I never took the class, but it's like, that's what it's called. It's been around for forever. So. Yeah, yeah. So he took that class and loved it. 
you know, and uh, made a lot of good friends through it and learned about maps from it. And the professor, David Presti, was one of his um, uh, letter writers for medical school recommendations and stuff. So I first heard about maps from my husband. Um, and uh, and uh, then fast forward a number of years, um, I was trying to get my husband um, to go with me to Esalen. Um, a lovely retreat center in Big Sur where there are hot springs and he's just not really that into um, like, you know, sitting in hot tubs and, uh, and lounging, uh, but that is my idea of vacation. And so I saw that um, David Presti, his favorite professor from undergraduate was teaching a three-day workshop on um, psychedelic medicine at Esalen. And I was like, oh, this will get my husband to go with me. Um, so we went to the workshop together, had a really nice time. He realized Esalen is great and would be willing to go back other times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was love that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, kind of got re started rethinking about maps as a result of that, um, of that visit. And also found out about um, CIIS is starting California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco is starting a certificate program in psychedelic assisted therapy and research. So we decided together to apply to it to be a part of the program, be thanks to that retreat. And then as we were doing that investigation and application, I started looking on MAPS's website. And I was so surprised to find out that my colleagues from my old days doing my vaccine and trials were the people running the clinical trials for MAPS. Wow. Like I, had, I had no idea. Um, so Amy Emerson, who's the CEO, was my boss when I was an uh, intern uh, doing vaccine trials. Um, wow. And, yeah, at Chiron. And it felt like this amazing fortuitous connection. So uh, we reconnected and some of my other colleague, um, Rebecca Matthews, who's also um, at MAPS, uh, we reconnected and we just kept in touch. And for about a year, um, I got familiar with their work. I was doing the certificate program. And then, uh, and then I started getting burned out practicing clinical medicine full time. And I was kind of at a crossroads for myself in, um, in general. And I quit my job. Um, I was, I was um, seeing patients full time. And I was planning to join another uh, primary care practice uh, when um, I found out about an opening at MAPS. And it was for a job that I was not at all qualified for, um, uh, helping run the clinical research, but a skill set that uh, you know, is uh, specific to sort of the administration and operations of research, not really for a physician. Uh, but I was kind of jokingly excited texted them saying, hey, any chance you know, you'd consider me for this position? Um, and we started just, they said, let's talk. Um, and so we had started having conversations of what kind of role I could have at MAPS. And I came on first helping them with operations, um, took the plunge to leave clinical full time, clinical practice full time and um, be involved in research. It was like a, it was maybe a, it was a long time after I had last been in research because I joined in 2017 and I left clinical research in 2004. So I had, there was a lot of teaching uh, things that I had to learn um, about the regulatory process. Um, but, uh, but it was uh, really exciting to be a part of the work that I had been kind of hearing about peripherally and 
Um, my husband is really jealous because it's his, uh, his <laughs> passion and he also works in clinical research, but he works for like a typical big pharma. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. That might be a good segue for one of your questions around conventional medicine. and Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you guys what you thought about, you know, conventional medicine and treatments for, um, you know, oncology type uh, treatments or like neuronal type treatments, which we're kind of working on versus how does that play into kind of what you guys are working on um, more like, would you call it holistic or maybe prior to, you know, that stress level being so high that it leads to these other conditions that we're working on. Just wanted to see how, what you guys thought about how, how these two different research fields integrate. I'm happy to jump in a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, I think, so first of all, we're, you know, following the same regulatory process that any um, sort of novel compound would would follow. And so there's, um, uh, while our modality of therapy is, uh, uh, and our treatment is um, perhaps unique in the world of pharma, um, uh, the process is still very much the same. Uh, we're a small group. And so um, the, uh, you know, there is a, the, we have less resources and, and fewer personnel uh, than probably your typical oncology drug that's coming to market. Um, and I think one of the striking things about um, psychedelic medicine that's different from maybe some of the other drug treatments is it's really, it's seen as um, a catalyst or a facilitator, but it's not actually, the medicine is not doing the healing. The human is doing the healing. The person um, who's um, ingesting the medicine and doing the therapy is, is mm -hmm. using these things as tools to help um, them heal themselves. And, and that's an, a different lens or a way of thinking about medicine um, that I gained from studying psychedelic medicine. And I began to see that actually applied more to other fields of medicine than I really fully appreciated um, before. So um, even in the oncology world, uh, you know, you're giving someone uh, uh, a treatment to try to uh, kill the cancer before it kills their body. Um, uh, the you know, really it's their body doing the healing. Um, and the medicine is just kind of a tool to help remove an obstacle towards their healing, which is, um, you know, the replicating cancer cells. Uh, we're still, you know, looking at, as, at MDMA as a, um, a treatment for a disease that has progressed a lot. I mean, most of the people that we've been uh, taking care of and, and, and who've been volunteering in our studies um, have had PTSD for a number of years. Like, uh, I think the average is somewhere between 12 to 15, Allison, if you remember, for phase three. But um, so it's really, it's certainly not a preventive treatment in the indication that we're uh, pursuing. Um, but, but we're, you know, the study and the results have shown that um, perhaps there are ways to get at the root problem and help people heal that doesn't require chronic treatment, as Allison was suggesting earlier. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm wondering if that gets at your question or if there are other parts of that question that you want to tease out for us to better um, respond to. I have kind of a, like a curiosity question, like how, because I've heard of physicians on this path of, you know, healing the body and then kind of moving into, 
you know, psychotherapy and healing the mind. And if you can heal the mind, you can heal a lot of things. So I'm curious what you think as far as how far reaching this style of therapy could go beyond something like PTSD um, that, you know, is kind of based in the mind. That's <laughs> a great that, question. If that makes sense. Yeah, that, that helps to clarify it a little bit. So most of the indications that I'm aware of that were being pursued for um, both MDMA, for psilocybin, are psychi psychiatric diagnoses for psychiatry. There's some substance use disorders that the FDA regulates them a little bit differently. It's in a different department, but they're still in the DSM. They're still considered psychiatric indications. Um, so primarily, those are the ones that are being pursued right now. And I think it kind of speaks to the what we think the mechanism of action is. Um, so by being able to create this period of openness um, based on the you know, release of serotonin and dopamine and there's a downstream release of oxytocin, um, the patients are better able to interact with their traumatic experience. They're better able to interact with the therapist and create that type of relationship. Um, one of the things that our, our founder used to say is anything that you can do on MDMA, you can do without MDMA. So it's the, the same type of therapeutic work. And it's really serving as the MDMA is serving as an adjunct to supplement and enhance the psychotherapy. So it, in a sense, like the therapy is almost the primary tool and the MDMA is you know working with it. So I think that's why we're primarily pursuing indications that are more in the psychiatric field. But we're definitely interested uh, in how, what sort of the ripple effects of that are. Uh, and I, I was even before I started getting involved in this work, you know, you see with people who have PTSD, for example, uh, there's a high comorbidity of a lot of other uh, uh, medical diagnoses. And and more than the general population. And so I, I think what you're trying to say is like uh, by uh, giving people MDMA and helping them with their PTSD, is there also a chance that will help them with their diabetes and their um, chronic, chronic pain, pain and mm -hmm. um, their like blood disorders. pressure, hypertension. And those aren't the indications that we're studying, but we collect everyone's medical history uh, when they join the study. And then part of our long-term follow-up is to assess their medical history at that mark after uh, a year plus after. Uh, it would be really interesting to do a long, long-term follow-up because sometimes these things don't change that quickly. We're going to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It's on the list. Um, because I think uh, while that may not be the direct mechanism of action, I think that there's, um, you know, there, there are both... Um, psychological and perhaps physiologic reasons why one could theorize that um, those things would get better as well. Um, whether it's people's PTSD is better and therefore they have more resilience and motivation to take care of themselves and be engaged in um, healthy behaviors and relationships um, or on a more physiologic level, is there something about having high levels of cortisol that over time um, impact your vasculature and, and impact your insulin resistance and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I think, I mean, my theory is that I think we'll, we'll see a difference, but, um, but we don't have the data to back that at this time. Mm -hmm. 
Fascinating. I had another question to follow on to that, but I have to think of it. <laughs> well, I, I had one. I okay, go ahead. So how does um, kind of, I know NDMA is kind of first in line coming through um, approval right now, but how does kind of some of the other psychotherapy treatments or I don't know if you want to call it plant medicine, uh, what other options are there um, coming along in terms of research for, for people as well? Um, so yeah, as you said, we are we are definitely at the front of the pack. We've been doing this for a while. Um, next behind us is uh, probably psilocybin, which is in phase two studies for a couple different indications right now, uh, treatment resistant depression. Um, I think that they're still doing the terminal cancer. There've been a lot of studies for terminal cancer patients, the anxiety associated with death in terminal cancer patients. Um, and a couple of different companies are working on that. There's also some folks that are studying ayahuasca, uh, ibogaine, LSD, which is lower on the list due to some of the public perception and more regulatory hurdles. Um, but I think because as this field has exploded, there are a lot, a lot more uh, smaller companies that are coming up and all of these compounds that I just listed have been around for a while. Uh, so there's not patent rights on them. So what seems to be going on a lot in the field is a lot of smaller for-profit companies are coming up and trying to develop new molecular entities that will mimic some of the serotonergic activity of these classic psychedelics to try to get a similar effect with a small new molecule that they can patent. Mm -hmm. It's a very different strategy than the nonprofits like MAPS and USONA are taking to their- Sure. And logistically speaking, how, you know, upon approval, upon completion of the phase three trial, how will you roll this out? Like, does it involve training a lot of people or like, I, again, I have no window into this at all. That's the multi-million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But you hit yeah. on it perfectly. It, re it really, because, because we see this treatment as an integrated therapy where the therapy is such an important part of it, we want to make sure that the people that are providing the therapy are trained and have the education and background and support to be able to guide the patients through this process. And so we are massively ramping up our therapy training. Um, I think each, uh, each group doubles in size at least. Uh, we're at our biggest group just is in process right now and we're currently enrolling our September cohort. Um, wow. Yeah. And how big are the groups? I think the most recent therapy group that's just uh, finishing up right now is 300. Um, wow. And, and we, you know, it used to be most of this was done in person and now that's not really a scalable model. Uh, and so uh, it, there, a lot of work has gone into how to develop a training program that's virtual, um, uh, you know, thanks to both the pandemic and also the fact that we need to scale this to really be able to take care of as many people as suffer from PTSD if this um, drug is approved and ensure that um, the bottleneck to access isn't that um, there aren't enough experienced and trained therapists. Um, so I don't know that the next cohort's gonna be much bigger, probably also 300, uh, but, uh, um, but there are uh, you know, a lot of hope to train as many people um, as they can to, uh, so that when, when if the drug gets approved, um, that 
there everyone can hit the ground running and start taking care of people. And the people coming into the program, are they already licensed therapists? Yes. Yeah, they're already licensed in a, in a variety of different ways. Uh, uh, and they're, they're seeking additional training on top of that to help them be experienced in psychedelic MDMA-assisted therapy uh, for, for PTSD. Wow. So how has the public perception kind of changed since the 60s and 70s around uh, psychedelics and what's kind of been your perspective on how that's changed and why it's coming back? Well, um, I, I wasn't around in the 60s uh, or 70s, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, people t are talking about this time as a psychedelic renaissance. Uh, and um, I think it's um, certainly in the, in the culture a lot more um, and more acceptable. And there are a lot of things that have paved that road. Um, and it's not actually just sprung out of nowhere. Uh, for example, uh, Rick Doblin founded MAPS in 1986. Um, so it's been a really long journey for him. I'm sure for him, it doesn't feel like, oh, it came out of nowhere. He's been working on it for, uh, for a number of years. Uh, I think uh, what's happened with cannabis in this country has helped pave the road for that too. Um, just a, a movement away from drugs are bad or all drugs are bad uh, to, um, to science. Let's study them and understand what they do. Uh, and how they affect people uh, physiologically, psychologically. Um, I mean, that's a big part of what drives me to do the work is not necessarily to say, um, this is good and everyone should use it. I don't mean that at, at all. I think I, as a doctor, would like to understand it. Like I understand so many of the other things that have been well studied um, to be able to give people informed uh, uh, ideas of how it might impact them. Um, so. Um, I think a big part of why the Renaissance is happening right now is because research has gotten to this point uh, where um, we have a lot of information to share and it's being generated in the way that research is typically generated um, to um, speaking the language of uh, sort of the people in power and the, and the way we communicate about these kinds of things. So that's a big, I think that's a really big part of it. And how hard is it to do research on these, uh, I guess these are class one restricted. Uh... That is actually exactly okay. what I was just going to jump in and say, you know, like public perception is part of it, but you know, the war on drugs was a really successful marketing campaign campaign. And because we have all these restrictions, it has really, really made research more challenging. So it's taken all of this time to get to have enough investigators that have schedule one license that are willing to do it, that have, that don't have these biases that are, you know, scared of being in this work that might impact their other career goals. Right now, there is a lot of extra paperwork because it is schedule one. We need DEA licenses. They do an inspection. Every site needs, you know, we have to follow all of that. And I think that there's extra public scrutiny. I really do. I think that the classification of these substances as schedule one saying that they are have a high risk for abuse and no medical benefit has really shaped the way that people think about the perception of risk and benefit of these substances that isn't based on data, but based on this classification, which also at the time was not based on data. Um, when we look at the amount of harm that different 
drug compounds can do and, you know, how um, lethal they are compared to, you know, the doses that people actually take, you know, some of the most dangerous drugs are the ones that are legal, you know, alcohol and tobacco are far more dangerous. They're much more likely to kill you than psilocybin is or MDMA, but you know, the, the way that this has been construed in the public is a, really different. So that I think that's been one of the challenges too. And, and I should also add, Ali and I are both in the Bay Area. Um, so we definitely have a different um, scope here uh, than other, other people might in other places of the country. To kind of touch on that point of like um, addiction, maybe being more prevalent with like alcohol or tobacco, like how addictive are these kind of um, MDMA and psilocybin and are, it sounds like maybe you only need to take it a few times and it might not actually be that addictive. Is that true? That, that is how our clinical model is set up and we don't have... There's a lot of particular types of studies that we do in animals and people to assess abuse liability and addiction potential. Um, neither of these drugs, neither psilocybin nor MDMA, are show the same type of abuse liability as drugs like cocaine or heroin. Um, the scores on these uh, behavioral tests are lower. Um, most people that take, are our patients that take MDMA in a clinical setting, they report that their experience is completely different than if they had taken it, you know, outside socially and um, assessing, you know, abuse liability in the clinical context is really important. And so that's one of the things that we're also working on, you know, negotiating with the FDA as well to really make sure that we're looking at this in the context of how this drug is going to be administered. What are your, what is your relationship with the FDA like? So <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, we are really partners in this drug development process. As we've discussed, NAPS has been the front runner in developing psychedelics for over 20 years. So our initial phase one and phase two studies were developed in really close collaboration with the FDA in the early 2000s. Um, MDMA was the first psychedelic assisted therapy to be granted this breakthrough designation status. Uh, psilocybin does have it now too. Um, and like I said, the first to complete the phase three trial, we're going to be the first to go to market. So getting through all of these steps involves a lot of close collaboration and discussion and negotiation with the FDA on all of these different components. So what pieces are going to go in our application, how we're compounding the drug, what's going to be on the labeling, what, you know, what we're going to print on the capsules, which non-clinical studies we have to include. And so us getting this breakthrough status is actually a signal from the agency that they support our clinical development program. And it also gives us additional tools of collaboration and communication, a designated project manager, we get faster meeting scheduling and turnaround time. And, you know, we have some instances where we'll disagree with the things that the reviewers say, but, you know, we really focus on using data-driven evidence to support our, our positions. And I think it goes a long way to building a collaborative relationship and trust between us and our review division. And, you know, we're all ultimately trying to use evidence-based science and supporting patient safety and access. So, you know, we, we have the same goals here. So I, I think overall the relationship has been really good because of that. And I was gonna ask you a question about the kind of set and setting that you were talking about. Um, I've heard that, you know, there can be different experiences based off of, you know, whether you're just out with friends or in more of a clinical setting. 
but also how do you control for set and setting in trials um, where, you know, maybe it's not best for someone to be in a sterile, isolated room. Maybe it's better to be in nature doing these um, therapy sessions. And how do you think about set and setting um, in, that, in that context? Really, really good question and something that we, you know, talk about a lot. Um, the, the sort of typical randomized controlled trial uh, where you're trying to make everything the same except some people who give drug and some people who give placebo, um, uh, you know, there's, a, I feel like it, uh, you know, it's touted as the best way to study something. And I think for a lot of reasons it is, and for some reasons it isn't, and kind of what you're describing, um, especially in the context of a drug-assisted therapy trial, there may, like you said, maybe for some people, being in a, in a room with two therapists um, is not the you know, optimal setting for them to get better, like uh, that maybe they would do better outside or, um, you know, all different kinds of things. Uh, maybe they do better with an orange wall or a red wall or a blue wall, or like there are like infinite kind of variables that you could consider in, in the context of that. Um, I think the premise to this question is an important one to go over, which is that set and setting are important for psychedelic assisted therapy. It's kind of one of the fundamentals of psychedelic assisted therapy. And, and what they mean is sort of the set is like what you're bringing to that moment. Um, what's, what's happened and, and for you and, and for the other people who are in the room with you. And then like physically what's in the room with you, um, uh, you know, what, everything from the temperature and the texture of things to what they look like, um, um, whether you feel safe or don't feel safe, all kinds of things like that. So uh, we control this to some extent as much as, as uh, uh, one can in the sense that we try to make it um, comfortable environment um, where people feel safe um, uh, and like physically and emotionally comfortable as much as it, it can be given what people are processing through those moments. This is part of why we do the preparation ahead of time, uh, the preparation sessions that uh, patients, participants do with their therapists is partially to do therapy and get to know each other, but really to familiarize them with the setting, um, have the setting be um, uh, more like a home and less like a medical office. Um, uh, you know, if you look at pictures, um, and I'm sure there are pictures on MAPS website of our trial sites, they look really resemble like a nice living room uh, and um, not like a sterile medical office. And so um, the idea is to um, provide an environment where people will um, uh, feel safe to really go to those deep and vulnerable places regardless of whether they're on drug or placebo, um, given that that's the mission of the therapy is um, um, to be helping them um, uncover this, this, uh, these vulnerabilities and understand them better. Um, but, uh, you know, in a, I'm excited for it when this drug, if this drug gets approved, um, the opportunity for people to riff on that more, um, the set and setting. Um, to, uh, you know, still maintain the same, like the ideas of um, set, and, set and setting and comforts, but be able to explore um, other slightly different environments and, and, and for patients to have um, the ability to choose, like maybe there's one um, prescriber and therapist's office that resonates with them better than another based on what they have physically there are those, are those people and stuff. So um, 
yeah, we recognize that the one size fits all uh, mentality for this is not, a, not uh, necessarily appropriate, but that's kind of the constraint of, um, of a clinical trial. That being said, all the different therapy offices look slightly different and have slightly different setups and stuff. So it's not like we tell them all the same couch to buy and the same uh, rug to buy and tapestry to put on the wall and stuff. They, they all bring their own um, personal sense of, um, of, you know, comfort and healing and safety to those environments. Um, so one thing that struck me when I when I was looking at, at MAPS as a whole is how many um, women leaders are a part of the organization. Can you can both of you kind of share any comments you have on that? Allison, a lot maybe. of enthusiasm. <laughs> it's been it's been great. I've I've been privileged enough to even before this uh, primarily uh, worked with, you know, uh, female leaders, um, but coming into maps where our gender, it's kind of just takes everything, you know, and puts it on its head. You know, you're not expected that, you know, the main players in the room are all women and so many of them are here. And it's on one hand feels really different, but on the other hand has also been a um, really comfort, like it's, uh, I feel like we, because the type of work that we're doing is really trying to, you know, heal and connect, it's unfortunately the things that women are trained, you know, to do in society. Um, but we've had a lot of open perspectives and in this model, um, it's seemed to have worked really well. And I know that personally as an employee, I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a funny uh, work conversation to be happening that you should um, perhaps consider some more male applicants for positions because you need to expand the diversity of your team and not just have women on the team. Like that's a, you know, a funny paradigm, but, um, but that's an actual conversation that's happened. Well, you know, you, you, you notice that in your team of six, in your specific team, you're all women and you're like, well, it's not like you're not going to review female applicants or something. It's just like, oh, I wonder, wonder, you know, if there are there perspectives that we're missing. Sure. I mean, that's something we're asking ourselves in general. Um, and, and it's important in this field to, and everywhere to be asking you yeah. know, what perspectives aren't represented, um, how might they um, influence things in a different way and how do our perspectives um, give us some kind of inherent bias. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, the interesting thing about medicine and, and, and uh, healthcare, I feel like is there, um, it's really uh, a lot of women in it these days. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and medical school has tipped. It's uh, more women than men in medical school uh, now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and it's a, no, I wish it. I wish I wasn't going to say what I'm about to say, but I, but I think it still bears saying. Um, like like I mentioned at the beginning, of this I have a three year old daughter, and I feel like um, there's uh, in a all women or mostly women dominated environment. I don't know. I feel a little bit more acceptance of like if my daughter comes into the Zoom meeting for a few minutes, or if I can't do something. Uh, for childcare reasons or something like that, there's just a little bit more flexibility or, mm -hmm. or maybe there's just, I perceive more safety and asking for those things. Um, and it's not really about that because my daughter certainly goes into my husband's Zoom meetings too mm -hmm. um, for his work. 
Um, but uh, I think that MAPS in general has such a commitment to um, the whole person and, uh, and all aspects of us that um, there's uh, like some safety in, and being, you know, your whole self. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, I don't know, I think that uh, maybe that it attracts people and especially people who um, feel like that other places, um, that's mm -hmm. not the case. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious if either of you have ever faced any type of criticism or scrutiny for working in the field of psychedelics. <laughs> no? <laughs> I mean, I like I said, I've been here for about two years and half of which has been in the middle of the pandemic. So there's that. Yeah. Um, I'm not really facing many people that are not in the Zoom box. For the <laughs> <Exactly. last year. laughs> um, but also, you know, I, I do try to be really cognizant of, you know, how much time we invest in the company and how, you know, being, like I said, being in the Bay Area in particular and um, I'm trying to make an effort to, you know, make sure that we are aware of the backlash that there might be in other places, but I haven't mm -hmm. seen a lot of it here where we are and I, sure. I think it would just be due to the area. Yeah. The Bay Area bubble. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. I, I think uh, I was really surprised um, that my parents were um, so interested and, and like accepting of it. I think, I, you know, they were people that I was more curious how they would react to it. Um, but my mom has worked in drug development for a long time. And so she sees it in that, in that way. Uh, and then my med school classmates, I feel like, um, you know, they, they, uh, I was always, even since I was in New York for med school, I was always kind of like the hippie Californian. And so they just thought this as like my, you know, me continuing that trend. Um, <laughs> But as the research gets published and the conversation continues, um, so people start asking more academic questions and, or sort of, it feels like it can be a professional conversation um, in a way that it didn't have that much um, space for that just five years ago. And so I, in the evolution of my time at MAPS, it went from, I'm that, um, you know, fringe hippie Californian doctor to, oh, wow, like, I want to learn more about the data, I might want to be a person, how do I get, how do I get uh, my career on track to that from people who followed very kind of standard uh, medicine careers. So um, I, uh, the, the sort of responses have changed. Mm -hmm. But Never any like professional criticism, just sort of like, oh, Alia, that's so, <laughs> that's so you that you're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Allison or Alia, can you talk about any particular highlights or days when there was a breakthrough or something happened um, as a result of, of these studies that you could share with us? Um. The first one that comes to mind is the day that we got our phase three data um, unblinded for us because it's all done. The analysis is done by third party blinded programmers to make sure there's no bias and everything's done properly. So we had a, a big meeting where all of the leadership, um, you know, we got together. We were just waiting to find out what it is. No, nobody else knew. Um, and we're all sitting and 
you know, they go through the presentation and as you guys are scientists, so I, I don't think I need to explain p-values to you, but, you know, we were, what we need for approval, you know, is just a significant, two significant studies, so it just needs to be less than p equals 0.05. And we were hoping that we would get 0.01. Um, and then when they put together the data, it was p is less than 0 0.0001. Three zero, wow. and everyone just—we were shocked. It was everybody. You know, we know how powerful it is, but I—it really blew everybody away to have like such a huge, huge finding. And wow, um, <laughs> I'm like tearing <laughs> up. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. Uh, it, it wound up being like a whole day of like all our board members came by, like everybody came by and we would like do it again, do it again. And like present wow. the data over and over. It was, it was a very, very exciting day. And then of course, from that point, needing to write up the publication and get the publication together. And none of us could tell anyone um, <laughs> because we didn't want to spoil them. Like you know, you can't have pre-publication right. results and, mm -hmm. you know, get going through all the review process. So it was an agonizing few months, like sitting on this huge news and, you know, wanting to shout from the rooftops. Uh, so once we finally got the paper published, it was really exciting to be able to share with everybody. Wow. Wow. Congrats. That's, That's huge. Amazing. Yeah, that, that is certainly one of uh, the superlative moments that came to mind for me as well. But uh, the other thing that came to mind is uh, I, um, I, so I provide medical oversight for our phase three clinical trials and, and I don't see patients directly that's happened at our sites. Um, but I see all of their data and it gets shared with me, uh, and kind of a real time basis. So that way I'm, um, making sure that everything's happening safely. And, um, and I also get shared with, um, the notes from therapy sessions. Uh, and so I, I hear about, you know, the really horrible, sad things that happen to people and I read them and then I, um, and then I, I read the notes from their therapy visits. Um, and, um, it's like just so beautiful and incredible to read some of the notes from the end of the, of the, like their time on the clinical trial, if they've been helped, um, because people were suffering so much and, they are doing so much better and have so much empathy for themselves and, um, and are so grateful um, that they're feeling better. And it's just like a, such a beautiful continuous reminder of um, why that p-value is important. Um, uh, and um, and those moments, if there's not just one of them, it, ha you know, it happens, you know, sort of sporadically throughout um, the time as I'm reading these throughout um, the day-to-day -day of work. But when I find one, uh, one comes in and it's, um, you know, really descriptive, I uh, just, it's, it's such a beautiful pause and reminder of like, you know, why I'm, you know, knee deep in spreadsheets or, uh, you know, like crafting emails or, I don't know, talking about more minutia. Um, so those moments are, are really special too. I love these two pieces next to each other. It's like the, right? the dreams, like what's going to go to the FDA is like a 
data set devoid of all of this. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's it's people. It's people whose like lives are fundamentally being changed. And it's really powerful. Thank you so much for that, Alia. Yeah, I love, I love, you know, both of those perspectives. It's great to have like the PhD and the MD side by side so we can be reminded of, you know, all that it takes to like make these things happen. It's it's really awesome. Yeah, and I was wondering um, kind of if you guys might be able to describe what really happens while people are taking this therapy and why is it so transformative, do you think? So the logistics of what's happening, I think, is you know good to go over. So when people are doing MDMA-assisted therapy in our in our treatment modality, um, they come in for a day a day long of therapy. Um, they're in a you know in a living room like setting, as I was describing, um, with um, two therapists who they already have a little bit of a relationship with. Um, you know, kind of practically speaking, they come in around 9 a.m. Um, they check in uh, with each other, and then if everything's good to move forward, then they um, take the medication somewhere between 9 and 10. Um, and then uh, the setting is set up so that there's a comfortable place for the person to lay down. And it's encouraged that um, person sort of lay down, have eye shades on and be listening to music on headphones. So that way they're um, really focused on sort of their inner landscape and um, less on the people in the room with them or the particulars of the room. Um, the music is a playlist um, mostly chosen by the therapist or the therapy team um, to sort of follow the arc of the uh, MDMA experience. Um, and help be evocative of like sort of the feelings and things that will come up for people um, as uh, the drug effect um, take, um, goes on for them. Uh, the peak of the drug effect is about 90 minutes after it's first ingested and, and people are taking it fasting in our studies. Um, so they fasted like uh, from midnight the night before. And um, at that 90 minute mark, uh, we check in with them, see, or the therapist check in with them, see how they're doing, if they weren't talking, if they were laying down, and, and then administer an, an additional half dose of the medication, um, as long as it seems like a good idea, um, which is assessed in a lot of different ways. Uh, but most people take that other um, half dose. And then, uh, uh, the whole day lasts somewhere between six and eight hours. Uh, the drug effect without the supplemental dose is like four to six hours and then six to eight hours with that extra half dose. Um, so that's sort of like, what does it look like? Um, and people pop in and out of um, being with their eye shades on and their headphones on and it's really um, session to session and person to person varies a ton. So some people are out talking a lot and really wanna um, use the therapist to help facilitate what's going on for them. And some people are on a, like laying down with their headphones and eye shades on the whole time and a lot of in variation in between that. Um, it's encouraged though for them to uh, try to spend some time inward again. So to just really kind of um, understand what's coming up for them. Um, the therapy is um, considered sort of non-directive, meaning um, 
the, the, the therapists aren't, uh, don't have specific questions that they're going to ask or directions that they want to take the patient in, that whatever's naturally coming up for the patient inside them, that to trust sort of that wisdom of uh, what we call the inner healing intelligence, which, you know, I say now, like, it's no big deal, but I remember when I first heard it thinking, what is that woo-woo uh, terminology? And we don't, I've never heard that in med school. Um, but just, it's just to trust that um, whatever comes up for people is what is what they need to be thinking about or, or processing. Um, so then in terms of like, how, how does the drug work and what is it doing? Allison talked a little bit about this and, you know, like, People are, are, I think, um, people who know a lot about neuroscience are really interested in like, what are all the different neurotransmitters and, um, uh, and we could, you know, there's a lot of schematics and it's in, in papers on that. But I think the important part is that um, uh, really the feeling for the, pay, for the participant, which is that there's um, an openness um, to look at things that sometimes are much more challenging or difficult or uh, scary to, to look at and to approach, uh, that, um, it, that, that fear kind of, it's not that they're not aware of it, but it melts away, uh, melts away and it becomes easier to look at things, not necessarily at the first time, uh, in terms of like, they're not going to look at the most grueling, horrible thing at the first time, but that, um, they may be able to approach whatever's coming up with more openness and empathy for themselves, empathy for the others who were involved in the situation, um, that there'll be less of that um, uh, trigger of fear, uh, trauma or, or, or other, um, other things that come up. And, and then this allows them to kind of see where they need to go to understand their, their process better and how, how they've come to arrive at who they are now. Um, and, uh, and as we've mentioned several times, this is really, um, it, this is a sort of a, a catalyst or a, uh, or a spark that um, helps facilitate a different kind or a way of approaching therapy. Um, but really it's, um, it's not so different than, uh, um, like eight hours of therapy um, without the drug, uh, except it just kind of opens things up in a, in a new way. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Allison, if you have more you want to add about the neurotransmitters or anything. <laughs> yeah, I was about to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so uh, some of the animal research suggests that one of the things that MDMA could be doing is really enhancing fear extinction by triggering this oxytocin-dependent critical period of enhanced neuroplasticity. So by having this you know, psychological state where you have increased trust and decreased reactivity, and then being able to face these traumatic events in your past and having MDMA facilitate the fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. It, like we think these are the mechanisms by which it allows the support of MDMA to really enhance the therapeutic process in a way that is durable and sustainable and that it's not, okay, we're just having this conversation about this hard thing, but it's creating new pathways that actually allows it to stick with you. And then importantly, as Alia was saying, the following this day of the MDMA uh, therapy session, there's also integrative therapy that follows it where they can kind of continue reinforcing these pathways. Um, so I think that that's, you know, 
generally we know that's really important for neuroplasticity is to continue, you know, following the same pathway. So I think these integration sessions that we do that follow the MDMA assisted therapy sessions are actually incredibly critical to it uh, working the way that we've seen it. Definitely. And I think this is why uh, in our phase two studies, we uh, found in long-term follow-up that people are even better um, than they were at the two-month follow-up, even though they it's farther time since they took a drug. It's that integration is so critical. And as people, as people integrate, as these uh, new neuronal connections continue to fire, then, and they're in practice of that, um, they continue to get better and better. So we're hopeful that our phase three data, long-term follow-up data will demonstrate that as well. Um, but we're, we're, actively do, uh, collecting it right now. Exciting. Um, as far as indications, what is MAPS looking at next? Are, are you, is the plan to move on to other disorders now for this MDMA therapy? Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, PTSD is certainly the uh, dominant program that we're doing right now uh, for a lot of different reasons. We're the farthest in it and um, once, if it gets approved, as I mentioned, sort of in the beginning, that um, there'll be a, a new source for funding um, because we'll be able to sell drug to then support our other research as opposed to relying entirely on philanthropy. So there is some push to get it past the finish line for one indication um, so that we can start pursuing the other ones. But uh, we also know that the path towards regulatory approval is long and that uh, we want to be starting the other ones um, concurrently so that way they're not too far behind. Um, so uh, we do have a program for eating disorders, which is starting soon. Uh, and um, that's when we've gathered a little bit of data on from our phase three studies and um, just uh, for people who have PTSD, uh, keeping track um, with some measures on how it's changed their eating patterns. Uh, and then, um, so that one, that study is up and coming, I think in next year. Um, uh, we have uh, still within PTSD, but studying uh, uh, a group mo uh, model of care. Um, so we're not just looking at different indications, but different delivery methods like um, is there a way to make, uh, do group MDMA assisted therapy to help um, with sort of the affordability related to having mm. two therapists sit with one person versus maybe two therapists with five people? Um, and and, and um, with that, I'm curious, like, is there enhanced um, efficacy because people gain community? Um, mm -hmm. a, a lot of these uh, mental health diagnoses people will characterize as um, lonely diagnoses that people aren't connected and feel mm -hmm. um, a lack of community. And just like other support groups um, have demonstrated a lot of success for people um, suffering from various, there's something that they gain actually from the support of the group that's um, in, in this modality of therapy. Um, I'm really excited about the group study. I think that that is going to be one of the big path forward for a lot of these different types of therapies. Um, so actually collecting data to show, you know, this is something that we can do is a huge step forward in patient access. And then MAPS has a really robust um, investigator initiated trial program uh, where we're not providing the funding for the research, but uh, we help um, sort of shepherd investigators along the way through development of their protocols and um, acquiring drug and all of the sort of hurdles that are unique to a schedule one 
drug um, research uh, to help for lots of different indications. So that is that um, is um, where sort of we participate in so many different things. Um, so there, uh, Ben Sessa in the UK has published on alcohol use disorder with MDMA assisted therapy, um, showing promising early results in a small group of patients. Um, and there, I don't know, one that I'm super interested in is um, opioid use disorder in postpartum women. Uh, and so uh, that's one that's uh, IIT that's up and coming. Um, but they're, I mean, they're like a hundred and some, though they're, they're tons. Wow. So I had a question about how can we kind of make the psychedelic research more approachable to society and like how can we make it progress faster um, in terms of removing hurdles for, for your guys' research? Oh, that's hard. I think those are really two very different questions. Um, the progressing faster is often, you know, we're definitely the pandemic set us back a bit. And as Alia said, since we are completely donor funded, that is, has been one of the big hurdles, um, trying to mm -hmm. be able to move as fast as we'd like, have the staff that we'd like the, I think any big pharmaceutical company hearing the, what we're doing and the, you know, scale of our, our phase three trials and the number of staff that we have, it's, a uh, phenomenal that we've been able to get this far and we're you know only increasing our staff in the last you know few years as we're gearing up for approval um sorry what was the first question so the first question was more around like getting um support from you know the oh the landscape yeah you know I, I i think about this a lot as i keep saying you know what the public perception is i I really believe that there has been a lot of, I feel like I said this already, but a lot of um, mischaracterization about the risks and benefits um, based on this scheduling and the public perception. And so trying to publish data to be able to change people's minds. Um, I don't know if that's the most effective tool to change people's minds. Um, we do have, MAPS has the policy development arm, they're working on that, a lot of harm reduction. So, you know, the MAPS arm of our company it has very different goals. Um, I mean, they're all aligned, but I guess very different mechanisms towards the same goals, I should say, instead of pursuing the clinical drug development model, they're, you know, out in the community doing these policy initiatives, harm reduction initiatives. Um, and we're hoping some of that might, you know, impact. We actually are starting a, um, some programs in other states as uh, different state legislatures are starting to do more harm reduction initiatives in their, you know, public groups with their law enforcement. Um, we're supporting these types of initiatives to try to, you know, make this more public and educate. What do you mean by harm reduction? You know, it's a term that like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to think of what's the best way to describe this, but uh, harm reduction also, people also call, sometimes say risk reduction. It's how can we help uh, maximize the benefits and reduce the risks in any particular situation? The way we, uh, uh, or uh, way we really talk about it is for, in this context is if people are choosing to engage in um, various different drug use, how can we help ensure that they have 
whatever kind of education and materials they need to decrease the risk um, uh, of those substances. So uh, the most, I think, common one that people talk about and not related to MDMA is like clean needle exchange for, for heroin use uh, is an example of a harm reduction um, model. How can we ensure that if people are doing it in a healthy and safe way? Um, so there are other examples with, um, with opioids, uh, uh, but it, for MDMA um, and MAPS, we have a, a whole arm of MAPS um, called the Zendo Project, which um, maybe you're familiar with, uh, but yeah. they, they... <laughs> it was one of my like last questions that I was going to ask about. So I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, Zendo Project, I think people commonly think of it, they go to festivals and are kind of like next to the medic tent, um, where if you're having a hard trip, uh, bad experience, and but there's nothing medically uh, going on wrong with you, uh, then um, you can come to Zendo and um, there will be people there who have kind of similar training to our therapists. I mean, they're not trauma specific and PTSD specific, but still um, the same kind of model of supporting people through um, uh, feelings and thoughts that come up while they're on psychedelics and help, um, help them have a you know, safer and more comfortable experience. Uh, and so um, these are volunteers and, um, and what this often looks like is, you know, sitting and talking with people, um, just help, helping people through their hard time by, you know, getting them some, something to drink, um, having them have a comfortable place to be, um, someone to talk to or bounce ideas off of, someone to kind of hold the space for them so that they know that um, if something comes up, um, that there's someone else who will um, keep them safe and, and, and help them process things. Um, so that's a lot of what we talk about in psychedelic medicine for harm reduction is how can we um, train people who are going to be the first responders to someone in a psychological crisis on a psychedelic um, to approach them from that kind of mentality as opposed to like they need to be restrained or um, they you know need to be taken to the ER. Sometimes they do, depending on what's going on medically, but sometimes... Um, uh, there, are, there may be better environments or ways of dealing um, uh, with a situation so that people um, are, are safe and comfortable and, and while they're um, on their psychedelic experience. And the idea behind the approval of these psychedelics is not kind of like marijuana where you can go to a dispensary. It's more probably a facilitated um, kind of environment where it's only being given under prescription or something like that. Is that, is that the idea? That's exactly what our expectation is because we're not developing this as a standalone drug that here you take this drug and it, you know, lowers your blood pressure, you know, like a stand, that type of medication it's developed as an adjunctive therapy. Our expectation is if the FDA approves it, it's going to be approved as an adjunctive therapy. So it does, this is part of what I find so interesting about the regulatory landscape. The FDA has not approved something like this before. You know, the, they regulate and approve drugs, but they, they don't regulate the practice of medicine or behavioral health practices like psychotherapy. So developing these combined treatments is really a leap in thinking for the cl typical clinical development. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. 
There are a lot of concurrent legislative measures to um, decriminalize these medication or these drugs and um, you know, even the word that you use, medication, drug, substance, mm -hmm. molecule, you know, the, it's, a, you know, different settings are maybe more appropriate for different drug names. That's why I switched. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, you know, legislation in lots of different states now um, uh, to promote the study of them, to decriminalize them, um, and some legalization and uh, and so there's their parallel um, uh, journeys, the mm -hmm. journey of uh, legalization, decriminalization, and, and, then the, and then the journey we're taking of regulatory approval um, that maybe ha have some of the same goals of uh, you know, understanding and, and safe and legal access, but um, are really different in the sense that um, we're, you know, if this drug gets approved, it'll be like any other prescription medication that um, a, you know, a doctor will assess someone and determine whether it's safe and appropriate for use. And then they'll, make, they'll write a prescription. And then the way it's different as Allison said is that we anticipate that it'll be a, a drug that's taken um, in a particular setting. Um, uh, so, uh, but there are other kinds similar-ish models of that, you know, no one does chemotherapy at home. People do it at the hospital or the setting where um, people, um, I mean, even that, I, as I say that, I realize that's actually not true sometimes. <laughs> but, but do you, I'm curious if you think, um, how much you think that the IP around some of these molecules inhibited its progress and I'm just thinking about that with respect to, you know, funding a clinical trial, but it being something that you can't necessarily hold on to as like your own IP, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That has definitely been part of the challenge. Um, the FDA gives five years of data exclusivity for things that don't have a patent on it, but that's all that we'll have. Um, which is why I was saying that a lot of these for-profit companies are hoping to develop new small molecule compounds. Some companies right now are also trying to, um, there, there have been attempts to patent different aspects of psilocybin-assisted therapy. Um, really? Some of the, mm. some of the different um, techniques in the therapy. Um, the patent field is very interesting. Um, you can file for patents for things and the PTO might even grant patents for things, but mm -hmm. Uh, you don't really have them until they're tested in court. Like you can have a patent, right. but if somebody sues you, it, it's really, you don't know what the outcome is going to be until that's tested. So uh, we do look at some of these patents as uh, a little bit extreme. They, they don't seem like things that they would be patentable. So I think that more and more companies are trying to develop things that are clearly patentable by making new small molecular entities. What are your thoughts around that type of strategy? Because I'm just thinking of the situation with ketamine. And if I understand correctly, you know, ketamine was showing really great um, efficacy for treating depression. And there was a push to try to identify like a, a similar molecule, but that one didn't work as well, um, you know, in the studies. Do you think it's, do you think, are you in support of people doing that or? Do you think we should stick with the like tried and true molecules and just, you know, all work together to get these clinical trials done and move this into, you know, greater use? 
I think it's a tough question uh, because um, at the end of the day, I'm uh, maybe it's, it's the doctor in me. I'm most focused on uh, do people have access to things that are going to make their lives better. Um, and um, the but I think the process is important because it impacts access. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things that MAPS is very proud of is that um, even as we head into this ambitious goal of commercialization, that we're remaining a nonprofit, not taking investors, because it's hard for um, that, that the investors and that sort of uh, yeah, desire to uh, please certain people by making money for them to not influence how you do things. Mm -hmm. um, that instead your customers kind of become your investors as opposed to the patients that you're trying to help. Uh, it's one of the huge challenges of healthcare in this country, I think in general, um, because health insurance is um, you know, not something that's uh, nationally supported and guaranteed in the way that it is in other places. And so uh, healthcare in general, um, the customer is rarely the patient. But that's the person whose life matters and who um, who needs help and, and wants to get better. Um, but that being said, um, you know, uh, there I I want them to be available, and so um, uh, it's a hard road what Maps is doing. It's a really hard road, and there's a reason why other. Um, other psychedelic research organizations have decided to go the investor route um, because it's, um, it's easier to raise money if uh, in that in that field um, and doing it that way. And that's why people are trying to come up with new molecules and patent them. The other side of this that is a really interesting debate is if a new molecule was developed that sort of minimize some of the things that make um, these psychedelic drugs sort of a bad trip or like the negative effects. And I put that in quotations because a lot of people feel like the negative things are important things to understand about, you know, and why you're having a negative reaction to them. Um, for example, psilocybin, some people feel really nauseous um, ingesting mushrooms or psilocybin. Would it be better to make a new molecule that never made anyone nauseous? Um, you know, standard medicine would say, yes, like that's, that's a good thing to do. We would want to avoid that. But there are a lot of, um, a lot of people in particular, the, the indigenous cultures who've been using psilocybin as part of um, their healing and, and, uh, and communities for a long time that think um, these tweaks on the drugs, uh, you're losing some quality to them, an important part of the journey and the experience, which is, um, you know, which teaches you something. So uh, I, I always hold that in balance too. Like what is good to get rid of? Um, or is that, a, is that a bad way of thinking about things? It's, it's not really the psychedelic way of thinking about things. The psychedelic way is to, how can you learn from the bad things? Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, I think we can wrap up. I. I no, our, our time is almost up. So um, did either of you have any, any last comments or if there's anything that, you know, our listeners can help MAPS or MAPS PVC with, um, such as recruiting or um, getting people into the training programs or donating to your uh, nonprofit efforts, um, feel free to, to share that now if you'd like. 
Um, yeah, those are all helpful things that are, are our program needs. All of the information is on our website, naps.org. Um, we appreciate everybody's, you know, involvement and interest in our studies. You can also sign up for the newsletter. We put out monthly newsletter and bulletin that give you a lot more information. Awesome. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a plug for you guys too, but share this podcast, like continue the conversation, share it with someone that you don't think would normally listen to this. Like this, the, this progress that we're talking about happens, you know, we're all just individual humans. It happens human by human. One conversation at a time. Yeah. One conversation at a time. So um, have the conversation. And, and uh, Absolutely. And that's kind of part of what, what this, you know, what inspired the podcast was like, sharing these types of conversations with others and, and bringing people into the conversation. So I really appreciate both of you taking the time and, um, you know, working with us as we, we get the, the panel style interview um, set up and everything. And um, I think we, it was a great conversation and so many interesting things came to light um, for me and I think Alex too. So really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to talk with you both. Yeah. And please feel free to anyone listening to visit maps.org for all kinds of information. We're very open science. You can see our protocols, our all information about the drug, everything um, on the website. And if you have any questions, there's an uh, ask maps email address, which um, does get answered. So uh, please. Yep. we all help answer the questions. It's uh... really <laughs> I yep. love that. <laughs> I should submit some. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Alex has even more questions. She really, like, she really was kind of the inspiration behind this episode, and I'm appreciative that she could join and share her uh, curiosity with you guys. So, um, awesome. Well, we'll get the edit taken care of, and um, probably in a couple days, send you guys a link for you to review, and um, you know, any any feedback is welcome, and then. Um, you know, we'll try to publish the episode in about two weeks. So give you guys some time to, to review and everything. I know people have busy schedules. Perfect. That. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. This Thank was you. awesome. <laughs> Thanks for all your questions. Of course. Bye guys. Bye guys. Bye. That wraps up our interview with Alia and Allison. Thank you so much for taking the time to teach us about your beautiful and exciting work at MAPS PBC. I learned so much. I hope that you as our listeners also learned a lot. And thank you again to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, give us a like, or leave a comment. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.